we've got a lot to cover this morning, so I'll just jump right in, even as people are still getting settled. Uh, we had one question from last week. Somebody really did their homework, uh, and the question was, I believe, related to Belhar. The question was, do the verses in Acts 5, 29 through 32, and 1 Peter 3, 15 through 18 support this statement? And that's referring to 10, 9. So in, your, in book of, the book of Confessions, every uh, confession has a number, just so that it's easier to reference. Yes, you could do page numbers, but then, in another few years when this is updated and stuff is added or, or amended or somebody wants to add a whole bunch of footnotes, the pagination gets off, right? So um, there, there's a secondary numbering system. And so 10.9 refers to the very last paragraph of Belhar, which reads, we believe that in obedience to Jesus Christ, its only head, the church is called to confess and to do all these things, everything that went before it, even though the authorities and human laws might forbid them and punishment and suffering be the consequence. Jesus is Lord to the one and only God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit be honor and glory forever and ever. So these two verses, um, the, the, the short answer is yes. These do relate to it. And I wanna just read uh, particularly Acts 5 uh, verse, now where did it go? Uh, in verse 29 of Acts 5, uh, it says, Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than any human authority, right? So if you remember, Belhar is all about, uh, there are already authorities, right? Apartheid, separation in South Africa is supported by the state and the, even the uh, Dutch reformed missionary church. Uh, and so this, this last little uh, coda on the end of, and conclusionary paragraph of Belhar is really to say, God comes first, not the authority of, of humans, right? So uh, yes, it does relate to that. Then talking more a little, a little bit more about last week, I really wanted to give thanks. It was uh, a very different class than I'm used to teaching, and I think a very different class than the ones, who, those who normally come to Westminster class are used to taking or participating in. Uh, so I appreciate your willingness last week to get up and jump up to the whiteboard with marker in hand and to do all that you did. Uh, it was really exciting to see that. And uh, uh, so I, t I took all of your suggestions, all of the banners that you had individually created in the groups, and then the one that we kind of compiled together. And uh, could, you, could somebody hand these out one to each table? Thank you, Dan. Um, and, I, and I sat down with Betsy Smith this last week, who is one of the uh, ladies who will work on the banners with uh, uh, Judy, thank you. I almost said Smith, I could, uh, yeah. Like, uh, Judy Douglas and Betsy Smith will work on these together. So this is kind of an advancement of where we had gone on Sunday. So I want to speak through this together. Um, we, there were so many great ideas. There were so many things we wanted to include. And the more we added on, the harder it was to understand what's really central, right? It's supposed to be a distillation of images and uh, uh, Betsy and I had the long conversation of what's in the other banners? Do we want to draw from those? Do we want to be different from those? Yes and yes, uh, but to what degree, right? So I just want to walk through this uh, banner draft that we've created this last week. And this is, I did this in PowerPoint. This is not at all what it's going to finally look like. I'm sure it'll be much more beautiful than I could do in PowerPoint. But if you notice here, uh, there's a purple background, and that actually came through from Perry. Uh, we talked a lot about the royalty of Christ and how Christ is at uh, the back of every, you know, he is the foundation of it all. So uh, the kingly Christ in purple, and there's no other banner that has purple as a background. So we thought, let's try that. Green for Africa, 
uh, a good contrast there, but also life, a golden cross. And these start to uh, reference the colors in the, in the uh, South African flag. And don't forget Madagascar, if you didn't know, there's a little big <laughs> island off the coast here. We are gonna include Madagascar. And then here, as we go down, there are chains breaking. Uh, and then you've got the communion cup and the bread and the Bible. And then uh, I think it was, was, was it Jim? Some, yeah, I think it was Jim had suggested because there's Dutch connections here and because there's a reformed connection, why not add a tulip? Uh, and that's a different class. If you want to learn about TULIP and what the, you know, all those mean, uh, it's an acronym for, a shorthand acronym for Reformed or Calvinism, uh, and then on top of a Bible. And then you've got a table with a tablecloth down here. Now, the thing that I could not represent on this paper is the, the idea that this um, image or this banner would actually continue with the tablecloth coming down into some kind of a, a V. So we have two questions uh, to answer this morning. Uh, what image do we think could go or should go here? And what type of communion where uh, do we want? Here, this is uh, just uh, pottery. The others, we could, do pot uh, we could do pewter. We could do something else. Um, what are, what are our initial thoughts? Before we even answer these questions, is there anything that surprises us? Anything that, wow, we really talked a lot about, we wish we could have, what about? Any thoughts on this? Pam. Talk about yeah. I, I know. I wondered, and, and that could be down here, that could be this image down in the tablecloth. The more, yeah, the more we put in the, it, it just became so busy. And I had the hands here, but it's at what point is it big enough to really be seen from the ground? So we could we could put hands here. That's certainly an idea. Cindy Cindy made a drawing and a good point. Instead of the hand reaching down, she had the hand upward for the Trinity, and that could be represented down there too. The upward hand. She has a and the upward yes, yes, I did see that and I, I've never seen an upward hand like that. Uh, three other banners have hands reaching down and that's representative of God the Father. But, um, so I wanna, it's this, funny, it's this funny tension, right, between we wanna create something new but still be in the stream of tradition and if we're offering this to the whole church, I wouldn't wanna say, oh, well, we invented this, you know, uh, and, and here's a new way to think of this image. I, I, I could do some more research though because I, but I've never seen a hand except in blessing, right? That's a benediction hand or like this. Um, but all the other banners have hands down. So it could be hands, uh, shaking hands, or it could be hands up or down. That's, that's something to think about. Something back here, yep. What about hands supporting the table? Two different colors. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, so supporting the table. Somebody else, I saw some, another hand over here while I'm writing. Okay. Okay. So supporting the table or the bread, uh, shaking hands, or up downs. Uh, single hand representing God. Okay. The other images that that we had pondered was we talked about that Cairo. Um, I'd just be too worried that it might get lost in the mix of everything else, unless it's at the bottom, right there at the foundation. Or uh, someone had also, I think Perry, you had a lovely dove in yours. What might it mean to have the Holy Spirit as the foundation also representing peace uh, right there? So um, I don't think we're gonna take a vote, right? We're not a democracy. Well, we are a democracy, but um, <laughs> That's things, th things to ponder and pray about uh, over there. Now, um, we have so many op options there, but let's come back to that, going, going to communion where. So here we have pottery represented. Um, there is already pewter uh, in the second Helvetic here, so we could be drawing from another image that's already there. 
Do we have any thoughts on communion wear? Steph? I think pottery, I, I like that idea because it represents the earth. Ah, okay. Okay. And it, it represents the earth. Zev said pottery uh, represents the earth and that connectedness. Yeah. And say again, Rosie. The availability. Ah. Okay. It's available everywhere. Yeah. Okay. Anybody want to fight for pewter on that one? Well, you might already have that color being used in the cane. Ah. Okay. I had not thought about, it. yeah, so Kevin said uh, the color of the chains may already be in the, uh, the communion wear if it were pewter, so we may not want that crossover because we're sending an accidental message, uh, communion is bondage, or something like, you know, whatever that might be, I don't know. Um, I'm always thinking, in what, are the, what is the implied message being uh, communicated here? So, uh, and the one thing that I, I was really blessed by as I was creating this and uh, in response to what we had all done last week, we had all talked about a whole loaf of bread, right? Everyone in shorthand drew a little loaf of bread and, and moved on because we had, you know, 20 minutes. It wasn't a lot of time. But as I was looking for images this last week, something that really was blessed, that blessed me was the idea of a broken loaf of bread. And as Christ is broken for us, we come to the Lord. This is Christ's body broken for you, for you and in Christ, we know our freedom, right? So there's this, there's this through line of the cross and the breaking of chains and the breaking of bread. So there's some um, image right down the center of that. Okay, so we're leaning towards pottery. Now what about hands or a dove or what was the other image? Oh, we had the Cairo, which if you remember looks like this. What do we think? Anybody leaning any which direction? Or do you empower Betsy and me to just make the final call? <laughs> okay. So if you remember, we don't have our packets from last week. The one challenge with that um, is that in C67, which you, I wish, wish I had an Elmo projection system up here, there, there are multiple hands in C67. There's four hands reaching in. There's hands shaking in the middle. There's Jesus' uh, hand with the, the uh, nails of the cross and a little in blood, the stigmata there in the middle. And then there's a hand reaching down. There's, there's like eight hands in just this one. And ours is going to be next to this. So as we think, do we want to use the same imagery or do we want to distinguish it from that? And we don't have to decide today. This is, we're not making this tomorrow. It's, uh, it's a process. Yes? I think things we're talking about, and this whole thing relates back to apartheid, mm -hmm. I think we need the three colors of hands mm -hmm. to mm -hmm. bring that image in. Right. Really, and I think supporting the table is really, really mm -hmm. unique. Like and supporting the table, I missed the last part. It's just a good image. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Oh, Pam. Yep. Right. Sure. Yeah, and we we had given that some thought. So we particularly about the historical rootedness. That's why we have the continent of Africa behind, right? Uh, and that came from uh, one, of the s one of the people had submitted uh, uh, Cindy, I think it was. You had the globe in the back. And that was really, we had drawn from that. And we really liked that. Um, and then we're drawing from the colors of the South African flag. But we wondered, especially being next to the other C67 banner, um, would some representation of the actual colors be too... Oh, now that I hadn't thought of. He said the links of the chains could be different colors. And that could get in exactly what we're talking about without being hands, as Pam, Pam said. So that's... Uh, it feels like it's missing, like if I didn't know what we had already talked right. about. I mean, the chain leads to some... Um, 
Sure. Sure. Okay. Okay. No, I think that's a great idea. And I think I saw Edith's hand, and then we, yes? Was that what you would? She took it. Okay. Okay, yeah, we could certainly try. I don't, yeah, I, I'm, I'm a terrible artist, as you all know already. Um, the dove or something else. Oh, okay. Great. Okay, so for further considerations. Yes, Zev. Yes. And we don't want to represent those colors being broken. Do you want the chain? Say again. Do you want the chain? I think that was particularly to represent liberation and reconciliation. Well, not reconciliation as much as liberation. Well, I think chain slavery. It wasn't actually slavery. It was not actually slavery. And that's, you know, in, in, in the mind of, yes, American. Uh, mind of the last two centuries, yeah. Slaves uh, represents slavery, but it wasn't quite slavery, it was separation. But it's the idea that there's still, uh, it, it's, it's metaphoric rather than, than literal. So. Um. The overlapping <coughs> is kind of the opposite in that they're brought together into a unity. The colored rings coming together, that's why we chose yeah. that before instead of breaking the chain. Ah. Okay, we have to move on because we only have another 45 minutes and a lot of material. So I, I, I we'll take our, your comments and, and points and we will um, talk about that more, about how to advance this. As always, if you have more comments, feel free to email me or catch me after service today uh, to share your comments with me. Or there's the, there are these green cards. You can always say uh, your thoughts on that. But we've, we've got to move on. So. Um, today we are going to particularly focus on two, it was going to be three, but it just became so much, right? There's so much in this book. Four weeks, uh, we've, as many of us have already said, how are you doing this in four weeks? And uh, the answer is I still don't really know. Um, <laughs> because uh, there is so much meat to it. There's so much history. There's so much, uh, there's just so much written, right? I couldn't, I could barely read this in four weeks, let alone teach a class on it in four hours. So um, know that we are barely scratching the surface of any one of these creeds and confessions. And so this really just serves as an invitation. This whole class serves as an invitation for you to pick this up or go download it on your phone uh, and read it uh, devotionally, right? That's what so much of this can be used for. And the one that, uh, the, the first that we'll talk about today that I think is best for devotional sake is the Heidelberg Catechism. Um, but we're actually gonna stay on that front page because we need to ask the question, what does catechism mean? Do we remember from a few weeks ago without looking at the, the answer in front of you? Do you remember what catechism means? Or how are they used? It's okay, most of you weren't here the first week, so I'll, I'll, I'll get Teach is a teaching tool, perfect, perfect, okay. Uh, so yes, they're used as a teaching tool. They come from the Greek instruction by word of mouth to instruct orally. And they're written, uh, these catechisms are uh, written in a question and answer form. And they're particularly written with children in mind or uh, to help adult converts um, for baptism um, to enter into the faith, right? It's just like a quick and, quick and dirty confirmation class. Uh, sure, we could use the catechism for that to get the, the core tenets of the faith. And behind both of these and many of the Reformation era uh, documents, uh, confessions, there's, there's all this tension going on in Europe during the Reformation about how do we understand communion? And I'm sure Zev will probably cover this uh, in his class on the history of the Reformation. How do, 
Maybe, maybe not. But it's a, it's a big point of how to, why are people not agreeing, right? So Luther, who did not really want to break off from the Catholic Church, he retains a lot. He wanted to reform from within, and they said, no, not so much. And so they kicked him out, called him a heretic, and he said, well, I'm still doing this. I'm still going to go and do this. And he still had a following. He had almost a Catholic understanding of, of communion called, um, we have now called consubstantiation. If you remember Roman Catholic Church, they believe in transubstantiation, that the elements, the, the bread and the wine actually become uh, the body and blood of Christ. It is a re-sacrifice of Jesus each time at the mass. Otherwise, if you don't have that, it's not really mass. Now, Lutheran church didn't quite believe that, but they believed that Christ was present somehow uh, in, through, and under uh, some mixture of, of adverbs that they, or, um, not adverbs, in with and under, thank you. In with and under, um, and it is some mix of prepositions, that's what I'm looking for. That's what Luther said. And then uh, all the way there on your right, Zwingli came along and said, well, when Jesus was at the Last Supper and he said, this is my body, he didn't actually, you know, he didn't cut off a, a body part and say, here, this is my body. He was obviously speaking in metaphor, and so, there's nothing going on in these elements beyond a metaphor. So he called it memorial, memorialism. He's that proponent. John Calvin in the Reformed tradition came along and said, it's kind of that, it's kind of this, it's somewhere in between. Why does this matter? In 2017, we do not have debates on this pretty much ever. Uh, if you want to debate on it, give me a call, we'll go out for coffee, because I'd love to. Um, but. We have other issues, uh, you know, other hot button issues. In the 1500s, this was the hot button issue. How do we understand what's going on in communion? And if you don't agree, then you are, you're just wrong and you're going to hell, right? Luther uh, the, uh, got together with a bunch of the other main reformers and they tried to agree. They didn't. And, uh, if they would have, we would be in a very different place in the church now, 500 years later. But uh, they did not agree. So that's kind of the continuum, and that's some of the reasons why these era confessions are being written in order to uh, clearly state this is what we believe, and let's try to word it in such a way that everybody can get on board or really seriously say this is what we believe, that over there is not what we believe. Okay. So, uh, and at the ver very bottom of the page, you have those uh, six elements to be aware of any time we're reading a confession or scripture or anything. What, what do you, uh, you, you can look at that on your own. We've looked at that before. But going on to page two, Heidelberg Catechism in particular. So, as I've already said, there is this controversy between the Lutheran and the Reformed camps about communion. So acting to end this controversy, uh, Frederick the Elector, ruler of the Palat Palatinate, asked two young men of Heidelberg, there will be no quiz, right? Zacharias Ursinus, professor of theology, and Caspar Olivianus, preacher to the city, to prepare a catechism accepted bull to both sides. So this is completed in 1562 and published the following year. So we probably actually have heard some of these. The number one question, uh, some of you have already come up to me and recited uh, from memory. Several of you have to memorize these as kids, and it's still in there. If you don't know this, maybe this is a good place to start in the Book of Confessions. Don't start on page one. Start here with uh, this question, and I will read it, and then I invite us all to uh, say it together. What is your only comfort in life and in death, that I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. 
In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. <coughs> Beautiful words, right? That we can use devotionally to say, what is our comfort in life and death? Can we imagine that uh, as we go through the struggles of life or we are on our deathbed, that if these words were, were on our hearts, that they could come to this bubble up to the surface wherever we are, wherever we're challenged to say, what is my comfort in life and in death? I am not my own, right? What a profound statement. That alone, but then it keeps going, but belong body and soul in life and death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Even if you just memorize that one line, just saying that brings me comfort, right? Knowing that God is in control, that Jesus I belong to Jesus, right? You can go on here. There's some other important questions. Um, there are 129 questions and answers in the whole of the Heidelberg Catechism. And it's divided into 52 sections because there are 52 weeks in the year. And so the idea would be that at an evening service that uh, a pastor would uh, preach through the entirety of the Heidelberg Catechism. Uh, one week at a time, taking a few of those questions, so two to four questions a week, and I'm focusing on the theology, really expounding upon it, making sure everybody understood what there is. And then um, uh, questions, well, the whole of the uh, catechism is framed around uh, a verse from Paul, Romans 7, 24 through 25. Paul cries and says, wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So that one little line becomes the, the outline and the, the, the way of organizing the whole of the catechism. So that questions three through 11 deal with sin, responding to that line of Paul, wretched man that I am. Questions 12 through 85 uh, uh, deal with the way in which God and Christ frees us, responding to who will rescue me from this body of death? The answer is Jesus. And then the final questions, 86 to the end, deal with the manner in which uh, we are called to express our gratitude to God for our redemption, responding, of course, to that last line, thanks be to God. What's great about this particular catechism, which it makes it, makes it one of my favorite from the Reformation era, uh, is it's very personal. What is your only comfort I am not my own, right? It's very, it's call and response, it's, it's questions and answer, but it's also my, our, your. Uh, it really becomes something that we are called to take on uh, and not just to read, but to speak, right? So this is one of those that uh, if you are reading this at home, I don't, I would say don't just read it in your, in your head, but actually read it out loud. See how it feels to, and, and really exp to experience these words coming out of your own mouth. Um, it's, it's quite a different experience. So also the whole of the catechism integrates the Apostles' Creed, which we looked at two weeks ago, the Lord's Prayer, the Ten Commandments, along with the discussion of baptism and communion from that Reformed perspective. Uh, and it is the... One thing we'll talk about a little later is what other creeds are being written at this time and uh, confessions. And one of them is the Augsburg Confession. That's something that only Lutherans uphold uh, because it talks to, it speaks to directly how they understand communion and all other sorts of things. But um, that is being written in the same period of time. And so uh, there is, there's, there's, uh, there are similarities and there's contrast here. So it's certainly written with Augsburg in mind. I wanna jump up back to um, question, the other three questions on the middle of page two. Um, why did the Apostles' Creed add he descended into hell? We talked about that a few weeks ago, right? That was a big question. Um, well, this is where you get those tensions and those interpretations of other creeds and confessions from within the book. So Heidelberg says, 
to assure me during attacks of deepest dread and temptation that Christ my Lord by suffering unspeakable anguish, pain, and terror of soul on the cross, but also earlier, has delivered me from hellish anguish and torment. So what are they doing here? How are they interpreting that line from the Apostles' Creed? He, Jesus, descended into hell. What's the manner in which they are interpreting that line? Anybody want to throw in on this one? Everyone's looking at me like, I don't even know where you want, to, want me to go. Say again. Oh, oh, I hadn't even considered that. Okay. Right, so rather than being, okay, that's where, that's where I thought, uh, that's where I, my thinking goes to. Rather than thinking of hell as a place or a place that Jesus actually descends to, the writers of Heidelberg are saying, they didn't really mean that he went to hell. So they're taking it metaphorically and trying to understand it that way rather than a literal descent. Um, and uh, yeah, and then we'll skip over, read, read question 61 on your own because it's, it's just gorgeous. Um, and then nine, question 98, this is where we get into some of the um, Reformation era conflicts again. We're not even gonna talk about at length, but there's that, uh, right, iconography all over churches and then this iconoclastic movement that says, whoa, 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 we can't have idols. And Heidelberg actually agrees, we cannot have idols. Um, may, Im may not images be permitted in churches in place of books for the unlearned? No, we should try not to be wiser than God. God wants a Christian community instructed by the living preaching of the word, not by idols that cannot even talk. So, uh, and they would, the writers of Heidelberg would come into this church, if, if we could put them in a time machine and bring them here, they would say, whoa, are you guys Catholic? Because you've got some stained glass windows. What are these banners doing there? Um, they would not quite understand. Uh, and so this is, I, I lifted this question up in particular to highlight that our understanding of iconography and the use and the purpose of uh, icons and images in the church have progressed beyond this. Now, does that mean that we're gonna cross this out and just do away with question 98, go 97, 99? No, 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 we don't do that, right? We, we try to preserve the catechism and the whole book of confession in their original forms as best as we can um, because they're, they are um, documents of faith and they are the, the documents that the saints have used throughout the ages, right? Um, so there were reformers who did not think that we should have stained glass windows or that we should have any images and colors. They whitewashed everything. Um, and for one, I'm thankful that we are not still there. We have moved beyond in a lot of ways. I think there's a lot of beauty to the images and that draws me closer to God. But when you're just trying to get out of the Catholic Church and all of their images and all of their statues and uh, I, I can understand why there was a big, res there was a, a movement of resistance against everything perceived as Catholic. We can't do that. Let's do it differently. And so uh, that was really part of what was going on. Uh, I wanted to talk through the banner here behind me, if I could. Uh, so this one on the right, on the left, excuse me, is the banner for Heidelberg. And you had this in your packet last week, uh, but if you didn't bring it, I will just highlight the images. So again, we can understand what's going on as we see these in the sanctuary. This is historically rooted in the colors of the time. So this gold or yellow color on top and bottom with this red along here, as a regal red and gold, tr uh, as a tribute to Frederick III, who is the one who uh, ordered the writing of the catechism uh, for followers of Calvin in Germany. <clears throat> and then uh, you've got crown of thorns, right? That's pretty self-explanatory. That's connection to Jesus here. You have a German cross, the tablets of the law. Uh, and these are the, the basic themes of the catechism. Right, and we even see the Ten Commandments in, in uh, completely uh, written as you know. What is the first commandment? The first commandment is what does it mean? What is the second commandment? What does that mean? Right, you see that later in the Catechism. Then here in the bottom, uh, if you wanted to know what Yahweh looks like in Hebrew, this is it: Yod, Hey, Vav, Hey. 
uh, Yahweh right there. So the, the divine name of God is revealed to Moses at the burning bush. Uh, and then this is the Greek name of, God, of Jesus. And what is this here in the bottom? This is the... The flame standing for the Holy Spirit. This is not the burning bush that I thought it was, right? So if you remember Scott's confession, which is the third in the line, they ha right at the same place, there is a burning bush. This is not the burning bush, this is the fire of the Spirit. So here you have Father, Son, Spirit, in a triangle formation. It's not explicit, it's implied. That is Heidelberg. Now how about one minute for questions? What do we got? <laughs> Any questions on the Heidelberg? Yes. My question is more general. Oh, no. Yes, let's just, uh, if we have more general questions, let's wait till the end just because we have so much more to cover. I was just about the Okay, yep. Why the cross? Why That's just the German style cross. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. There's all sorts of different kind of um, orientations of crosses and, and styles on the ends of, of uh, it's just, that's the German style, yeah. So, historically rooting it in Germany. Okay, let us move on then to page three of your packet. We're moving on to the second Helvetic. And let's actually start with the banner since our eyes are already focused up here. Uh, we'll start with this. So this comes out of Switzerland and the word Helvetic, I just learned this last week, I knew it as a font, right? Anybody else? Helvetic font for a computer? <laughs> it actually means Swiss. It comes from the Latin word meaning Swiss. Swiss. And so then, it shouldn't surprise that this comes out of Switzerland. And we see the blue here, the blue cross and the white background. Very simple, right? It's in a quad four quadrants. And uh, the blue and white uh, are the heraldic colors of ancient Switzerland. Then you've got, uh, the, as we said already, the cross and uh, the burning, the burning uh, heart in the hand, a traditional symbol for John Calvin, father of Presbyterianism in his Swiss homeland. We have this, this is an old style oil lamp, right? With another cross on the side of it, which I love. Uh, and this is knowledge, discipline, and themes uh, that Helvetic um, really underlines. Then here on the bottom left, we have the shepherd's crook, and this is uh, actually representing a pasture. Um, and uh, so reminiscent of uh, Psalm 23, right? The Lord is my shepherd, we are in his pasture. He is our shepherd. And then here on the right, even though these images are similar, this is a pasture, and these are supposed to represent waves. So here is our cup. Here is our waves, this is baptism, and here is communion, right? So, uh, it's funny when you look at these that, you know, they're, they're there every week, they've been there for over 10 years now, and how much theology is contained just in these images, right? That's the beauty of the banners. That's the beauty of images in the church, right? Uh, so, Getting back to the packet, page three, uh, this is the least well-known of any of the creedal documents. Uh, and we'll, we'll look at a few portions in particular. Um, I'm going to not so much, um, I'm not gonna read the, the history uh, here. That's, that's a very, very shortened version of the history. Except to say what makes this confession second Helvetic most unique um, is that it actually is a personal confession of uh, Heinrich Bollinger. So he uh, helped to write the first Helvetic. If you're wondering, where's the first one? Why is this the second? Why don't we have the first? The first was written, again, kind of like Heidelberg in some ways, talking about communion, and um, Luther didn't like it. Luther said, no, not good enough for me. And it, but the first Helvetic actually did help to unify uh, the ref, uh, reformed Germans of the, the day. So it served its purposes, but hasn't really lived past uh, uh, for several reasons. But um, <coughs> Bollinger wrote his, his, this personal confession, lengthy personal confession, 
uh, not confession as in I killed this person, right? This is a confession in the, the sense of I believe um, and I confess to this uh, in faith. So he actually wrote it and thought, I'll give it to the city of Zurich when I die. Well, before he died, and which is a strange thing, I would never think, I'm gonna give the city of Canton my personal testimony. You know, like what? Um, it's a little strange, but um, before he died, it became apparent that this, uh, it was needed. The reformers wanted some document like this. And he said, well, I've got this one lying in my safe, wait until I die, do you want it? Okay. so. It was written in a very uh, simple language with an eye to practical application, and it came after uh, Heinrich Bullinger's 40 years of pastoral ministry. So it's written with a very pastoral uh, mindset. There on the bottom of the last two thirds of that page, this is the overview of the content. It's split up into 30 chapters. The uh, first through the 16th deal with theology, and then the final ones deal with church, ministry, and sacraments. And I tried my best, it's, sometimes it's all over the place, I tried my best to um, organize them in such a way that you, you, you can see chapter three of God is unity and trinity. Four through seven kind of pertain to those things. Um, but in looking at the big, uh, the big things, you see you know, um, man's fall, sin, cause of sin, Jesus Christ, in, down in 11, the Catholic Holy Church of God, 17, sacraments, prayers of the church, singing, there's a whole section on singing, catechizing and comforting the, and visiting the sick, burial, rites, ceremonies, and things indifferent, I think that's the way they used to say miscellaneous, um, of celibacy, marriage, and management of domestic affairs, and of the magistracy. So uh, some topics that we would love to read about and some like, I'll, I'll leave that, right? Maybe that just pertained to that era. Now the one thing I wanna highlight, as, we, as remember that, that list of six things on the very first page that um, we looked at a few weeks ago, the order in which things are presented says a lot about what the emphases were of the day or what was, uh, what was primary in the mind of the people writing them. So, what is the very first chapter written on in uh, Second Helvetic? Say again, Pan. Holy Scripture being the true word of God. So that's where the Second Helvetic starts. So we could have a conversation. Is that a good place to start? Is that a bad place to start? And why? Uh, I'm, we're not going to have the conversation, except I want to put that question out there. So on your drive home later today, you can, or down to Wakanda, you can ponder, why would that be important? Why would you start with the Scripture or not? Is it better to start with scripture? Because other confessions that we're gonna look, like, look at, scripture is way down the list because they think God's being itself is primary. Yes, we learn about God through scripture, but God is, is uh, first and scripture comes after, right? So, but in this era, sola scriptura, scripture alone, not, we shouldn't lean on the traditions of the Catholic Church, we should lean on scripture alone, sola scriptura and so, it goes, uh, it's understandable that that's where they start. Now, I wanna turn to page four. Here are some key passages. Uh, I've got about eight there for you. And again, we don't even have time to read them all, but uh, these are some of the unique passages uh, from this document. And it's, it's quite lengthy. There's a lot to it. But uh, relating to interpreting scripture, uh, what, I f what I love is that this is one of the first documents of its kind to actually talk about how to interpret scripture, right? Uh, in the modern era, there's all sorts of, you know, you could go from literal to metaphoric to uh, it's just a good story. You, you know, wh what, how do we interpret scripture? Well, Second Helvetic is the first document of its kind um, to really talk about uh, how to interpret scripture. And, and I love this line. So here under 5.010, um, thus we do not allow all possible interpretations, right? Uh, tell that to a poetry class uh, in English, ninth grade English, and you know, they'll, what, you don't mean, I, I, well, this is what I see. Well, that's really not what's there. Scripture is not like that. And Second Helvetic lifts that up. 
we do not allow all possible interpretations. Skipping down a few lines to the next bold section, we hold that interpretation of the scripture to be orthodox and genuine, which is gleaned from scriptures themselves, skipping the parentheses, and which agree with the rule of faith and love. So we have to interpret all the scripture with faith and love. This is kind of the cipher through which you can, or the, the lens through which you have to read all of scripture according to Second Helvetic. Uh, then skipping down to uh, 5.039 about man's fall and sin, and I have sneeze here. Oh, there, went away, okay. Uh, this is a conversation I had a lot in youth group. I don't know how many people still wonder about this. I always wondered, okay, if I commit this sin, do I have to, you know, pray for longer to, in order to save? I'm sorry and for, ask forgiveness because, you know, that's a really bad thing. No, that's not so bad. Well, is one sin worse or better than the other? Well, probably never better, but is it ever worse? Um, Second Helvetic tackles this again, saying, we also confess that sins are not equal Although they arise from the same fountain of corruption and unbelief, some are more serious than others. Is that what we still believe? I know. That's what Second Helvetic says. So, then um, predestination, uh, a big word here in Presbyterian Reform circles, predestination, and the next section, underlined and bolded, it is to be held as beyond doubt that if you believe and are in Christ, you are elected. So this is another one of those ways that this can be used devotionally, right? If you ever have doubts in your life, if you ever, you know, wonder, am I elect? Am I really going to heaven? Here it is. Second Helvetic, this document that uh, was written uh, almost, well, 450 years ago, and which we still read today, says, it is to be held as beyond doubt that if you believe and are in Christ, you are elected. Right? A great word of assurance you know, of uh, your election. Then um, there's all kinds of conversations about baptism, um, condemning Anabaptists, which we could talk about that for the rest of the class, but we don't have, uh, as always, we're, time is short. Anabaptists, though, were a movement of people who came along and said, oh, you know, the Catholic Church baptized you as babies, but we think that Scripture is uh, more faithfully uh, pointing towards baptism as an adult. So Second Helvetic says, we condemn Anabaptists who deny that newborn infants of the faithful are to be baptized again. It doesn't say again, but it's, it's, it's supposed to be again. Um, we condemn also the Anabaptists and the rest of their particular peculiar doctrines which they hold contrary to the word of God. We don't say these things anymore and we wouldn't say these things, right? I have a, uh, one of my closest pastor friends in town is a Mennonite which comes through the Anabaptist stream and tradition, uh, and I'm not gonna tell him I condemn you and all of your peculiar doctrines. Um, I, uh, no, because we are in a different place. Again, these are all, if, I cannot imagine being around Europe at this era where everyone is trying to figure out, okay, now that we're not in the Catholic Church, how do we do this? What is important and what is not? And because everyone's got their own ideas, you have to say, this is where we stand. We don't agree where you stand. And so it really, it's this contentious time uh, that clarifies a lot of doctrine. And quite frankly, is kind of some of the reason we're still having disunity today. I'll get to your question in just one second, Kent. Um, it's part of the reason we still have disunity today, but uh, there's a large movement in many circles to come back together. Ecumenism, coming back together, uniting. Uh, there are some churches, um, I'm forgetting the word off the top, is it, it's not federated, is it? Where, where, where there'll be a small town with multiple churches and well, every church has 10 people and they say, you know what? Let's look beyond those differences from 500 years ago and come together beyond our denomination and have one church. That happens, right? Uh, in seminary, I learned of a, a pastor who was uh, overseeing one congregation that was four denominations. Uh, very different in theology, uh, but he was the one pastor of them all. So we're moving, I hope, toward unity, uh, but it's understandable where they were. Yes, Kent.
I don't, well, so be, just to clarify, I, I may have misheard, but I think I heard you say anti-Baptists, and I want to make sure we, it's Anna is again, anti is against, so slight difference there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right, right, right. Yes, certainly a lot, a lot of the Anabaptists came to America. I don't think that this particular document was necessarily responsible for that. I think it was an earlier movement, and it was, you know, there was general uh, discrimination against Anabaptists all over. Um, the Catholic Church certainly didn't like them because they were saying uh, that baptism you guys did, that, that's not real. So they were um, marking as invalid the sacraments of the Catholic Church. And so they were kind of disliked from all corners and all sides. So I don't think that Second Helvetic in particular uh, had a large effect there, but I'll look into that. Um, then on these last three sections, this is all of celibacy, marriage, and the management of domestic affairs. So uh, I thought this was an interesting thing to look at. We don't talk about these things a lot, and it's interesting to see 450 years ago, what did we think was important? Um, say again. <laughs> right? So children are to be brought up by the parents in the fear of the Lord. They should teach their children honest trades and keep them from idleness. Uh, then um, it is most certain that those works which are done by parents in true faith by way of domestic duties and the management of their households are in, go in God's sight holy and truly good works. So I can say sometimes when I'm watching the kids or making food for them, I'm like, okay, I do not want to do this. This is... Uh, you know, I'm really tired. I just need another cup of coffee. And, sh and she's screaming and he's making a mess. And what am I going to do? Right? Corny can affirm this sometimes happens. Right. Yeah, right. I know. Okay. <laughs> so uh, yesterday breakfast, actually. Um, so um, this, is a, this is a revolutionary statement, right? Because the, if the priesthood is upheld as you know, the priests in the Catholic Church are upheld as uh, being at the top of the, well, I don't want to say food chain, but it's the first thing that comes to mind, right? They're, they are God's chosen, the best, the most holy. Well, after Luther and uh, the Reformers left the Catholic Church, they started families, right? So Luther was the first priest to officially marry. Um, and then thereafter, families became a more celebrated, honored way of being a Christian. And so this is, this is a revolutionary and really profound statement for 450 years ago that uh, by doing these things, these household duties, um, domestic duties, it says, they, they are certainly in God's sight holy and truly good work. So the next time you're... Uh, cleaning your floors or making your uh, breakfast or whatever, and something you don't want to do, right? Like laundry or dishes, whatever. Um, think this is truly holy in God's eyes. So says Second Helvetic, so say we all, perhaps. Okay. Uh, we've already spoken about the banner. So we have just about five minutes. I'm gonna hold questions to the end because we have another page that you should have grabbed in addition to your uh, packet that has the picture of communion on the front, you should also have a document that says confessional comparisons with other denominations. And this was actually surprisingly hard to find for some, some, some denominations. But um, speaking about Baptists and non, most non-denominational churches, they do not uh, uphold any creeds or confessions uh, traditionally. Uh, and maybe uh, on the books they wouldn't. So of course, as I said before, I came out of the American Baptist tradition where uh, it is, we are allergic to creeds in the Baptist faith because uh, we think that it is our job, there's something called soul freedom, it is our responsibility to say what we believe by the guiding of the Holy Spirit, and it's, it's very individualized. Um, and, um, a creed really says, it comes down from on high. This is what we believe. This is what you should believe. So Baptist non-denominational churches kind of resist that, that notion in general. Then moving down here,
Moving down here to Evangelical Presbyterian Church, EPC, as well as the uh, RPCNA. They only uphold the uh, Westminster Confession and Catechisms primarily, eh, according to their websites, right? If they were pressed, they probably would also uphold Nicene and Apostles. I should say, before we, we leave the Baptist for too long, that um, the Baptist Church I, I came out of, uh, we would say the Apostles' Creed or Nicene Creed, um, even though the, a Baptist, street, Baptist church down the street might say, you guys are crazy. We would still do it. So it just depends on the church. It depends on the, denom- or the, the individual community. Moving down, uh, eco and you may say, there are this many Presbyterian churches, there are this many Reformed churches, the answer is yes, because uh, just like our, our Reformation forefathers and mothers, we said, this is where we draw the line in the sand. You think that about communion? Well, we think this, so we're gonna go start our new church. And that's kind of what, what's happened in a lot of ways. And some of those reasons may be justified, some may not be, but if you look back 500 years and say, that's a really weird reason to, to leave and to start another church, Maybe another 500 years, people will look back at us and say, that was a kind of a weird reason to, to separate because then 300 years later, they came back together and there was one giant Presbyterian church. I don't know, I know. I, 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 I'm a, I hope, I hope that that happens, but I don't think it will, unfortunately. We're too human. So, uh, ECO um, has all of the same in the Book of Confessions because they came out of the Presbyterian Church, USA, PCUSA, except... Uh, they left before we added Belhar, so they don't have Belhar. Then um, the CRC and the RCA uh, have Apostles, Nicene, Athanasian. If you remember our very first week, some of the homework uh, was to read through the Athanasian Creed. If you still haven't, I invite you to do so. It's a fabulous and beautiful piece, uh, confession. But uh, and talks a lot about Trinity and how do we understand God, Jesus and his humanity, his divinity. But what it says is, if you do not believe this exactly as we have said, then you are, uh, it's not corrupt, you are essentially going to hell. You are not saved if you do not believe this as we have said it. And my, my suspicion is that it was not put into the Book of Confessions, our Book of Confessions, because it's a little too hard-lined for us. Um, we don't want, yes, we want to tell you what theology is, but we want you to uh, figure that out on your own journey and to say that these people are in, these people are not, is not our job. So that's the one thing about Athanasian Creed that we don't really, we may not really uphold. Anyhow, uh, there are others, Belgic and Heidelberg, both of them have that. They both have Canons of Dort. These Belgic and Canons of Dort are things we do not have in ours. Um, our Book of Confessions. They, though, do have Belhar. They jumped on the Belhar bandwagon well before we did. Uh, And then they also have these contemporary documents that their churches have written. The CRC has Our World Belongs to God, a contemporary testimony. A Reformed Church, the RCA, has Our Song of Hope. So uh, those are written in very accessible contemporary language, but those came out of those denominations. So I doubt that another... Uh, I doubt that we'll ever get those added to our book of confessions. And then uh, Lutheran, Lutherans uh, have the Book of Concord, and that was really um, pretty much compiled uh, through the Luther, Luther himself and many of his documents. Um, so particularly the ELCA as well as the LCMS, uh, Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, um, they uphold those three ecumenical creeds, Apostles, Nicene, Athanasian. But then Oxburg, which we talked about briefly earlier, written in 1530, uh, down through many other documents. And I wanted to just uphold this, uh, read this from the bottom. This comes from the Constitution of the LCMS. The, constitutional, the confessional article of the Constitution of the uh, Lutheran Church states that the synod and every member accepts without reservation the scriptures of Old and New Testament as written word of God and the only rule and norm of faith and of practice and all the writings in the book of Concord as a true and unadulterated statement and exposition of the word of God. So that is where some of our brothers and sisters are, right? We uphold a lot of the same documents, uh, but some are different. Um, And there are reasons why, going back historically, but this is where we find ourselves, where God has called us to. We are in a church 
that is rooted in the Reformed tradition, and today we are PCUSA, and this is the Book of Confessions that we uphold. And so as we seek to learn more about uh, God, uh, I invite you, again, to pick up a copy of this, because you are not just here because you decided to come here today. You are called here by the Holy Spirit. And as the Spirit has spoken to the saints through the ages and the saints of today to compile this book, so on our journey of faith, um, you are invited to pick this up, to read this, and to learn more about how you can, uh, how, who God is, who you are in God's kingdom, and how we can uh, be a community of faith together. We are out of time, or else I would ask for questions. Again, there are green cards up here. Uh, if you have some questions, I invite you to write those down on the card, and we'll try to answer them at the top of next week. Next week, we are going to do a very, very quick crash course through Westminster, Barman, C67, and maybe Brief Statement of Faith. It's brief, but there's a lot to it. So let us pray before we go, and uh, yes, let us pray. Almighty God, thankful, we are thankful as always for your Holy Spirit in and among us. The promise that where two or three are gathered, you are here in our midst. We thank you, Lord, for the ways you are speaking to our hearts, the promises that we have heard today, and the knowledge that even though we are divided in so many ways in doctrine um, throughout the history of the church, even if we are still divided today, we are one body in you. Help us, God, to seek a kingdom of unity to have a vision for your one true holy catholic church we lift this up in the name of father and son and holy spirit and say together amen, amen.